What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. In this episode, we were joined by Dan Gretton, who's the author of a new book titled I, You, We, Them, Journeys Beyond Evil, The Desk Killer in History and Today. So it's a really fascinating historical investigation into the psychology behind some of the least visible perpetrators of evil in in history, the kind of faceless bureaucrats who conduct acts of killing behind a desk. He was interviewed by Roz Irwin of the Sunday Times. At some point in this episode, Dan Gretton makes reference to a map. So we've included a link to the map in the description of this podcast. Hello, I'm Rosamond Irwin. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Dan Gretton, the author of I, You, We, Them, Journeys Beyond Evil, The Desk Killer in History and Today. And I thought where we should start is your book is looking at this idea of desk killers, those who order and direct some of the worst atrocities. But of course, these people aren't visible perpetrators of crimes against humanity. They're people who do it sort of at arm's length. Um, I want to know, first of all, what drew you to that subject? Well, thank you. Um, the, the origin of it, really, um, very, very beginning of it, was when I was about 22, I spent two days in a cinema in central London, watching um, Claude Lansman's nine-and-a-half-hour film about the Holocaust, Shoah. And there was one scene in that film which totally haunted me, which was a memorandum being read, like a business memorandum. And as the memorandum continues, you realise that the, the, the man who's writing to this other man, higher bureaucrat, is writing about how mobile gas chambers can be made more efficient killing machines. But the language he was using, this man called Willie Eust, who was writing to Walter Ralph, who was an SS officer. And of course, you point out it's spelt in English just, well, which yes, feels which is very a, ironic. a horrible, hellish irony. <laughs> hellish yeah. irony. But the language that was used in this memorandum was absolutely modern and contemporary. It was the language of two businessmen writing to each other. And I began to think... Is there something which is not about only horrors that are distant in the past in history, but is there something about our world which is about people not killing directly, but people killing through paper? 
the lethality of paper, killing through memoranda, killing through orders, killing from their computers, killing from their laptops. And then some years later, um, when I was, um, I used to be co-director of um, an arts company. We did very environmental work, quite political work, and we were looking at the impact of oil companies worldwide, human rights implications and, and environmental um, impacts. And it was the time in the mid-90s when there was a huge amount of attention started to being paid to what Shell were doing in Nigeria. And there was this moment when nine men who had been campaigning entirely peacefully, including a wonderful writer called Ken Sarawiwa, who some people may know the name still. And these nine men who'd been protesting completely non-violently were executed after a trial on trumped-up charges. And so the second moment, really, in this evolution of wanting to do this book, was thinking, how did the people who work for Shell continue in their work? How did they kind of... What did they do to their minds? How did they compartmentalise their minds to continue to go into work in Waterloo, you know, the Shell Centre that we all know in the centre of London. And that was a question. I thought, how would you do that? How could you do that? When something so clearly wrong has happened, terrible. There was one resignation in Holland, a Dutch Shell man resigned publicly. No, no resignations in Britain. And the third moment, which connected everything, was in relation to Gita Sereni's work. And um, Gita Sereni, a wonderful writer, and she, she wrote some outstanding books on the psychology of perpetrators. And um, the book that most affected me that Gita Sereni wrote was on Albert Speer, who was Hitler's architect, and a classic desk killer. I mean, he, he almost never saw his victims. He stayed in Berlin in the office, you know, doing his work on arms. He was the arms minister in the war, having started off as Hitler's architect. But he thought of himself as an incredibly civilised, humane, educated man, you know, who had his family, four young children, his wife. And he, to see Gita Sereni, who spent two years interviewing him at the end of his life, trying to make sense of how this man could conceive of himself as being all those things and yet participate in this absolutely barbaric system. And so those three things together came together and I began to think nothing has, substantive has ever been written on this subject. There was a moment in the 60s when people began to talk for the first time in Germany. They used this word Schreibtischtäter. Yeah, a compound noun. We know the German, Germans <laughs> love one. Um, do you want to explain what it means? Well, Schreibtisch is desk and Täter is sort of perpetrator. So the very clumsy translation would be desk perpetrator. But Täter in German always means it's sort of, um, it has a, a very sinister connotation. It, it, it could be used for criminality, basically. So really what I want to, uh, to, to, to really get this word in common usage, which is kind of an aim of this, this book and this whole project, it would be to say, you know, d the closest we could get really in English is desk killer. And I'm very careful not to say desk murderer, because I started off thinking maybe it's desk murderer, but most of the people who kill, it, there isn't the intent. It's not like malice of forethought and people saying, I want to kill hundreds of Nigerians because we need the oil. It's incredibly rare for, the, for people to intentionally kill from their desks, but millions of people 
unintentionally kill from their desks or in government bureaucracies or in pharmaceutical companies or in you pick arms companies you can you can you pick them out oil companies i want to take you back to that ss officer that started all this mm. now he talks about 97000 people being processed mm. and he talks about them as though they're a load and as though they're a mm. cargo mm. and it's that dehumanization dehumanizing language that i think is so telling about your subject because it's a distancing it's saying mm. these people are not like me which of course is in your title Absolutely. Uh, as well how do you think how, 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 I mean, one of the puzzles for a lot of us, and I, I, I completely understand why you focus on the Holocaust, because clearly it's embodiment of what you're talking about. There's a, uh, there's a lot of, of the elements of, of that surprise us about it, is the horror that so many people could be willing to go along with something so abhorrent. Mm. But how do you think he was justifying that? Because I think the language is quite telling there. Mm. You mean in, the, in that memorandum? In that memorandum. I think... There's, as you say, there's, there's uh, nearly always there's a dehumanisation which occurs before people become desk killers, and that dehumanisation is often related. I mean, why the t- why the title is called "Are You We Them"? It's once you start collectivising a group of people, once you essentially them turns people into objects. So, in all examples of genocide you get this dehumanization of the victims before they be, before they're killed so you know in, in, and often it can be used with animal names so for instance in rwanda you know before the killings in rwanda the hutus described the tutsis as inyenzi which means cockroach and in their equivalents in nazi germany jews were vermin you know so before you kill them the collective body you dehumanize them often by calling them animals once you've collectivised them, that you can then do almost anything. And um, another person who um, Gita Sereni interviewed, Franz Stangl, who was the commandant at Treblinka, Stangl said that he began to think of the, the victims who arrived at Treblinka as cargo. That was his word. They were cargo. And and later in later talking to Sereni, he said that it reminded later on in um, when he was in South America because he escaped like a lot of Nazis, or actually helped by the Vatican, which is completely you know appalling that the the Catholic Church were involved in helping SS officers escape to South America. But when Stangl was in South America, he actually describes being next to a, a, a rail line and watching cows coming into an abattoir, and he was reminded of the Jews at Treblinka even after the war. Mm. So there was this absolute dehumanisation of the people. And that's something that profoundly shocks Gita Sereni. And it shocked me when I read that book, that somebody could get to that point. Franz Stangl is, is an interesting example because you go through the moments in his life when it could have gone a different way. Mm. But he did try to say he didn't find it okay. He did try to transfer. Of course, he kept, he stayed there and he is mm. overseeing the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. And I think you say at the mm. height of it, they were killing 20,000 Jewish people a day. A day, exactly. Yeah, astonishing. Mm. And his wife confronts him about what he's doing as mm. well. But how, I, I, this is a really interesting sort of psychological question that mm. someone is saying, I don't find this okay. And yet he's going to work every day and he's still doing it. Mm. How how do you think that process happens in a person? I think it's incredibly complex. I don't think there's a single cause. 
With Stengel, one very significant factor is quite early in his life, early in his career rather, he's incredibly influenced by the Catholic Church. He grew up in Austria in a, in a Catholic family. And, it, and like many people who ended up working in the extermination camps, he started his work as a security officer in the euthanasia, so-called euthanasia project which was the, well, the, the, the killing of disabled new, children, disabled, um, children and, 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 and adults, mm. some of these physically disabled and some of these um, mentally disabled. And it's, it's comple- completely fascinating to me in Sereni's book, the way she looks at the way those people were, they, it, 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 by incremental stages and steps... So they started off in as you know, he started off as a policeman, ordinary policeman. He didn't get on with his boss, so he's offered a transfer to a hospital where he's he would be a security staff. But the there's a secrecy around it, so he has to sign absolute secrecy, you know, forms that he won't tell anybody what he's doing. But the pay is better, so it's a kind of career move. And then once he's there, he's obviously becomes massive. I would say morally contaminated at that moment. He stops being a police officer and becomes a security guard at Hartheim, one of the hospitals. And do you think that's the point where he stops thinking of everybody as human in a way? I think it starts there. I think it starts there. And I think the second part with Stengel that is completely fascinating is that there were you know, senior Catholic bishops in Austria who justified the euthanasia project. You know, which, which it, for is us is, is, is quite yeah. astounding. But there were people who actually thought it was um, perfectly acceptable to kill, you know, people who were who were going to propagate well, the next generation. It feels very unchristian, that, doesn't it? it seems extraordinary. And there were, I have to say, to be fair, there were senior cl- um, clerics in Nazi Germany who absolutely didn't. Mm-hmm. It was, there wasn't a uniform position. There was a bishop in Munster and um, Richard Evans, who's a great historian of the Holocaust, he says it's the only moment that Hitler was directly challenged internally, not from within the party, but by a bishop at Munster. And when the Bishop of Munster went public in his condemnation, when, it, when the news got out about the euthanasia project, Hitler stopped it within weeks. And it's an incredibly interesting example. When people say that you couldn't have opposition to Nazism within Germany... Absolutely not true. Well, there were clerics who ended up, Catholic priests who ended up in, in Auschwitz. Absolutely, and, there, were, and so on. there were. So there of were course, people. There who... were people who, who who opposed. So, you know, but but I think Stengel is a is a is a remarkable case for the extremity, I suppose, of where he ended up. But I don't think he's he's certainly not unique in terms of that incremental journey and things happening, almost like a careerist. I mean, Eichmann is another example of somebody who was totally ambitious about his career and he saw he saw it as step by step by step promotions promotions and it was the holocaust provided an amazing opportunity for him to progress you know from having had a very very poor you know experience in his 20s he was a vacuum cleaner salesman and worked for an oil company for a time but you know he didn't there was no um, career progression but my god you know he became effective as an organizer of mass murder I think there's a quote in your book that I think comes from an SS doctor, but correct me if I'm wrong on that, Mm. um, which is when a normal person goes into Auschwitz, the only way to react, I mean, you stop being a normal person after the first few hours in your reactions. Mm. It's sort of as though there's a numbing effect Mm. of of seeing such horror and such Mm. degradation of other humans 
but what is that? What happens to a person when they're thrown into a situation which at first must have been to many people, you know, incredibly mm. shocking and obviously I, i'm not talking about the, the victims here i'm talking about the people overseeing it there must have been people who walked into that and thought what on earth is this hell mm. that we are creating as mm. well mm. Uh, no, you're right I, it's, it's, a, it's a quotation from a young doctor who says um, something to the effect of it was only possible to be a human being for the first minute and then he obviously felt completely morally contaminated by what he'd witnessed. But uh, the doctors at Auschwitz, I mean, they again are... Uh, uh, Robert um, Lifton has written this... I mean, it's a, it's a classic book called The Nazi Doctors, a brilliant look at the psychology of, of the doctors in the Holocaust. And But, but how that was organised was a very, very... Um, uh, I, I was going to say clever, but that's too positive a word to use. It was very devious by the by the um, SS doctors, because they would use peer pressure from other doctors. They would also use um, older doctors who would sort of take care of the younger ones as they arrived at Auschwitz. And they would also use massive amounts of alcohol as a kind of anaesthetic, you know, numbing. And so there were ways in which, uh, and of course, some people didn't, some people didn't cope, you know, so there was a, one doctor committed suicide, you know, uh, but, but, it, but the, the kind of peer conformity cannot be underestimated. If you arrive somewhere, even you think, even if it's hellish, and you're seeing people being selected and taken to the gas chambers, if you see everybody around you, who has taken the Hippocratic Oath as well, but if you see all of those people saying, well, actually, there's some very good scientific research going on here, and Dr. Mengele is heading a unit of really, you know, it's really innovative medical research here, you know, you can, it will be help, enormously helpful for your career as a doctor. I mean, it, it sounds impossible to us to think that people who'd taken the Hippocratic Oath could take part in that. But there were hundreds of doctors who were, who were involved at Birkenau and Auschwitz. You've got a line, a, a Tolstoy line, that we can all become accustomed to anything. There's nothing that we can't become accustomed to, and especially if you see others mm. accepting it, which is, of course, what what those people were. Mm. What about those people who didn't accept it? And I realise we all want to cling to them because we hope yeah. that, that they're sort of our bit of hope in this Pandora's box of hell. Yeah. But what about those people you know, and, and there's a small number of them, mm. the people who couldn't cope with it, who couldn't become accustomed to something mm. so mm. abhorrent. I mean, those are those are invaluable. Those people, they 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 are absolutely what we have to cling to. But I think anybody who's looked seriously at the Holocaust, you have to accept they were in a very small minority. I mean, really small minority. You know, we think of, uh, and, and countries have myths about this. I mean, all, many, many countries in Europe have myths about this. I mean, H Holland, which has always thought of itself as a very progressive liberal country. I mean, Holland had, I think, the highest rate of collaboration in terms of the Holocaust. More than 90% of Dutch Jews were, were, were killed in, 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 in the war, and that, often with collaboration of Dutch citizens. So... I have a problem with, for instance, I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington some years ago, and I, un I understand why it's there. They had an entire floor of that museum, which is about resistance to the Holocaust, out of, you know, three or four floors. It's probably a quarter of the museum. 
Now, just statistically, if you were to talk about the people who did save, who did risk their lives, it would be somewhere between 1% and 5%, or even lower than that, maybe, 2 or 3%. And if you think about it, it, it that's truly terrifying. I had, a, I had an incredible conversation with my mother, and, and it haunts me to this day. She grew up in North London. She, she was a child during the war. And her closest friend at school was Jewish, Ruth. And she once told me that she had had a conversation with my father, who was an academic, and both my parents were quite left-wing. And this conversation, I, I, I mean, I can't tell you how disturbing it is. They talked about what would have happened if they'd been in the war, in the war situation and Germany had occupied Britain. And they had had to make a choice about sheltering Ruth and her family as Jews. And what my mother said was that we realised we might have done that. We probably would have sheltered Ruth if we hadn't had children. This is a really interesting point. And the fact we had children... Yeah, because you're risking more than just you. You're risking more than your life. Mm. But the really upsetting thing about that, from my point of view, hearing that was thinking that the act of having children, which should be a hopeful act, actually becomes a something which can make you complicit in not helping mm. others, which I found, I, I still find, I haven't really processed that, because it's so upsetting to think about that reality. And you're right, it's about, do we have the right to risk your, you know, children's, people, your lives, children's lives? Who you have brought into life and expect to protect. Absolutely. Yeah, as your fundamental but that's drive. So, that's, that's disturbing on so many levels. And I think probably many people who were probably very, very good people made that same decision, thinking we cannot risk our children's lives as well. I've often thought it's easier to be brave if you don't have children, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Because you're so. just risking y- yourself. Absolutely. And that's a gamble. Yeah, that no, but, it, you know. but I think there's something really interesting there, which is that a lot of us want to think that we would be one of those people who protests, who mm. says this isn't okay. Mm. But in reality, mm. a lot of us are very happy to go along with things. Yeah. And I think it's why we cling to those stories of the people no, who I, protest. No. We want to believe that's us. Absolutely right. And and one of my, my absolute heroes is um, the political philosopher Hannah Arendt. Mm. Arendt writes brilliantly about this. And she... She um, said something which, again, I, th- I, th- I think I-, I wish more people knew, knew this, this, this quotation. She was in Germany, obviously as a young Jewish woman, with her mother and her family, and not with children. But she describes what happened when the Nazis came to power in 1933. And she's not, she is not shocked by the brutality of the Nazis. She's not shocked that they're thugs. She's not shocked that they round up dissidents and put them in the concentration camps that were opened within weeks, like Dachau was opened within weeks of of the Nazis coming to power in 1933. But what she was really shocked by was what she talked about the accommodation of the intellectual friends of hers, left-wing friends of hers. And she says this, I'll just read this short quotation. She described it as an approach of what she called Gleichschaltung, cooperation. And this is what Aaron says. The problem was not what our enemies did, but what our friends did. In the wave of Gleichschaltung, which was relatively voluntary, in any case not yet under the pressure of terror, it was as if an empty space formed around one, 
I lived in an intellectual milieu, but I also knew other people, and among intellectuals, Gleichschaltung was the rule, so to speak. So what she's challenging us there is saying, you know, you nice progressive liberal people, you think you would, you think you would oppose, you think you would be, you know, um, fearless. Would you really? Or would you cooperate? And, and, and you know, that's a really salutary um, piece, piece of testimony, I think. I wish I could remember who said this, but someone, and I, perhaps it's an Israeli academic, looked at what made people oppose mm. Nazism, what made them be mm. somebody who was brave enough to mm-hmm. uh, help a Jewish person or you know, hide somebody. And they had almost nothing in common as people. Right. Uh, you know, oh. you had incredibly sociable people, people who were reclusive, mm. you know, complete spectrum mm. of humanity. But one thing they did find was that to go along with it undermined mm. a very deeply held view about themselves, mm. that, that it became something that for them was so undermining of who they thought they were mm. that they couldn't sort of resist saying this isn't okay. But right. those people are rare. They are rare. And that's the frightening bit, isn't it? It is frightening. It's very frightening. And Primo Levi talks about, I mean, if you read Primo Levi, as I'm sure you you know his work, one of the most upsetting things is is reading about how people under that kind of terror and almost a weekly fear of death and extinction, what people will do to survive. And and, And so few people came out of the... Yeah, the, the, those, I mean, that incredible intense situation, somewhere like Auschwitz, so few people came out with their humanity intact, according to Primo Levi. And interestingly, some, the, t- he, he talks about two groups that did. And it, it completely fascinatingly, um, one was communists and the other group were Jehovah's Witnesses. And he talks about those and what they, of course, have in common is they have a system of faith, political faith or religious faith, so that they could see what was happening to them, not in a completely self-pitying way. They could see it as a result of, if you were a communist, this is, you know, class war taken to its extreme. Or, you know, the fact that um, you were being victimised as a communist, that was part of a systemic clash. Or if you're Jehovah's Witness, for your religious beliefs, you were being persecuted for your religious beliefs. But but what was fascinating about that, and I, I, I was very moved when I read this in Primo Levi, is that he was saying that people who could still keep some sense of collective connection with other, with other prisoners who were fellow communists or fellow Jehovah's Witnesses, they actually behaved better than many of the other people. That is fascinating. Mm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. You talk in the book a lot about evil and and. Gita Serena sort of grapples with the idea of evil. And I've always thought it's a distancing technique for us. So mm. we want to say those people are evil because we don't want to think we could ever be yes, like them. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think when we use that word, which we use far too loosely, oh, no. I would also add, no, no. Um, I mean, we're slightly dehumanizing the people who are dehumanizing people, perhaps, that we I, don't I, want I, to see that they have humanity too. I mean, I think, I think that's a word which really should only be used with inverted commas around it. I think it's an incredibly unhelpful word. I mean, we were talking just before we started recording about Gwen Adshead, who um, used to work at Broadmoor. And Gwen Adshead... Would is working with people was working with people then about two hundred of them in Broadmoor who were the tabloids would regard as absolutely quintessentially evil people, and yet the humanity of Gwen Adshead is that you know what she talks about these people as survivors of shipwrecked lives, which I was completely arrested by when I heard her interviewed. I just, I, I, it was such a remarkable phrase. And she said in virtually every case with those people who've done horrific things, I mean, she wasn't minimising what they'd done, but they had catastrophic childhoods. Mm. And, and nearly always there was a massive abuse, either physical or sexual abuse in childhood. And so she's able, remarkably, you know, patiently over many years to try and go beyond that label of evil, which they'd had probably since teenage years or from their young offending, to try and locate the human being and the little child within that perpetrator. And I think, I, I, I mean, I, there may be, there may be the odd, there may be a tiny number of people whom you could use that word evil about, but they are so few there's, an, there's actually two quotations from, um, from um, Prima Levy and also from um, Hannah Arendt. And I, I think, I, 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 I still haven't found out whether they were in correspondence. I, because the quotations are so similar, I feel they must have known each other in, in the 60s. And I think they must have corresponded, but I'm trying to find out this at the moment. But Hannah Arendt said this, which directly relates to your question about evil. The trouble with Eichmann was precisely that so many were like him and that the many were neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. 
And Primo Levi, echoing Arendt, says monsters exist, but they are too few in number to be truly dangerous. More dangerous are the common men, the functionaries, ready to believe and act without asking questions, like Eichmann, uh, like Hoss, like Stengel. And I think we are obsessed as a society with the idea of the psychopaths and those kind of killers. I mean, if you if you have a book which has psychopath in the title, you know, you'll sell hundreds of thousands of copies. But I, it's to other them, isn't it? They're othering. not like us. They're, they're, it's, it's that idea of it, whether you call somebody a psychopath or whether you call them evil, what you're actually doing in that moment is you're saying, there's a label there. We know what that is. We don't really have to look at them. We don't really have to look at the humanity of those people. It's uncomfortable to look at the humanity of those people. So let's label them. And that, in that process of labelling, we are doing exactly what the Descadas do in that process of labelling. You know? And I, I think it's, it's so much more complicated when we have to... Well, Arendt used this phrase, the banality of evil, which in itself, I, that caused absolute consternation when, when she used that phrase about Eichmann in, uh, in her book, Eichmann in, in, in Jerusalem. But it's funny because now it feels like quite an accepted idea that the, the banality of evil well, is it's, quite a well-used it is. Phrase. It's very well-used. But what's fascinating is that when Arendt used it, everybody else misused what she said mm. because she never actually used that phrase on its own. The last line of that book on Eichmann is the fearsome word and thought defying banality of evil. So people totally misinterpreted, having not read the book closely, what she was saying. She wasn't saying about she wasn't saying it was banal. She was saying it's fearsome, word and thought defying. It's incredibly hard for us to understand what somebody like I the 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 the, the result of that the 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 normality of somebody like Eichmann or or Stengel, it, 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 it was far from you know it was it, it, it it's it's almost impossible for us to imagine how those things can happen, but but she was I suppose her her thing there was uh, she got into a huge amount of trouble because she she went to Jerusalem to the trial of Eichmann and she expected to see somebody monstrous. She expected to see somebody like Richard III, you know, somebody with, you know, and what she saw was this cliche-ridden uh, uh, bureaucrat who massacred the German language, which she loved, who taught in these clunking cliches, who, who was a careerist. He was a careerist bureaucrat. There was nothing exceptional about him at all. He was a very good organiser, but lots of people are good organisers. Is it possible for any of these people to get their humanity back? I mean, obviously, Eichmann fled and uh, gets executed uh, mm. far too many years on. But Speer is one of the many things people know about him is obviously he's the Nazi who, on some level, said mm. sorry and is, is allowed to live out his life in prison. Is there any way back? And I mean, Gita Sereni might, might mm. have a view on this. Is there a way back for somebody who's committed what we all think of as atrocities? Is there a possibility of refinding that humanity there? I mean, Speer is a, is a, is a fascinating example because he was in prison, obviously, after Nuremberg. He was given a 20-year prison sentence. And it, interestingly, the Russians thought he should have been executed. Many people today think it's extraordinary that people junior to him uh, Saukel, who was his deputy, was executed, and Speer managed to avoid that. In it, some people think it was the most clever 
legal defence that there's ever been. Because what he said was, he was the only senior Nazi at Nuremberg who accepted responsibility, but he accepted collective responsibility. But he he never said he knew he or he had knowledge about the extermination of the Jews. But he said he, on a on a abstract level, he accepted responsibility, and for that reason, he was given a twenty year prison sentence. The French and the Americans and the British, who were the other three parties, thought he shouldn't be executed. So he's had twenty years in in Spandau prison, and I I write in the book in detail about this remarkable moment, a couple of years into his sentence, when he meets a Protestant chaplain called Casalis, who comes to, you know, uh, every week, to comes to give a, a service in the, in the Spandau prison chapel. And Speer begins to change. And there are these three or, three or three and a half years where Casalis is at Spandau, and Speer asks him, would would you help me? Very early on, he says, would you help me to become a different man? Which is an incredible thing to ask somebody, especially somebody like Speer, who was quite reserved. And it's a sort of electrifying moment when you read about that. And Sereni was fascinated in that moment and talks a lot about him. What's What, in, in, what interests me is that Speer... After after his after his imprisonment, he wants to minimise the role of Casalis because he doesn't want people to understand he was so vulnerable and he was really questioning things. And in, in he published these diaries, the Spandau diaries, and Casalis is not even mentioned in the index. But Gita Sereni realises he was fundamental to Speer changing, and what Casalis asked Speer to do is open his mind and spirit to suffering. And so he gives him this incredible reading list and asks Speer to read philosophy. He asks Speer to read novels. He asks Speer to read widely on psychology. And Speer begins to change. And then, very sadly, Casalis leaves and Speer starts to write these memoirs in, and, and something then closes down again. And when he's released... I think it's an incredibly sad story because once Speer is released, he becomes a kind of celebrity. And he's, you know, I mean, he, he starts earning really quite a lot of money from doing the lecture circuit and going on television. And he becomes, you know, I mean, you can imagine, in the, imagine what it would be like today. Speaking head Nazi type I mean, thing. exactly. You know, he's the yeah. good Nazi. And, you know, he, and, and he lived in a very, very comfortable house in Heidelberg where Sereni interviewed him in the last couple of years of his life. By total, a weird set of circumstances, bizarrely, he died in London. I mean, he was in a hotel in Bayswater when he, he had a heart attack. He was remarkably having, um, later in his life, he, he, he found love with a much younger woman, like a kind of mistress in, in London. And, you know, uh, but, but <laughs> and I, I just think there's something profoundly ironic. He died on the way to um, St Mary's Hospital Paddington in the ambulance. And that, of course, was the city which he and Hitler planned to bomb so it didn't exist anymore. They were going to totally destroy London. And they were looking at maps of London, how, how, thinking how it could be all bombed. And the National Health Service trying to save Albert Speer's life in an ambulance going between this hotel in Bayswater and St Mary's Hospital. I mean, it's kind of something out of a film. <laughs> but, but I think Speer, the only reason I, you know, the reason I, I think he's had too much attention, to be honest. I think he's had 
too much attention. I think many people don't un- don't realise he was profoundly incriminated. And there's much more material that's come out recently, which proves categorically that Speer knew about what was going on. I mean, Speer knew he was in Russia on particular days when he saw the um, immediate aftermath of massacres in on the Eastern Front. And it was quite clear also he was at a speech that Himmler gave in Posen. And he tried to pretend incredibly convoluted ways that he'd actually left the conference by that stage 1943 he hadn't it was a, you know a complete smokescreen he and he what he was he was very devious he was a very devious man but the only reason i'm i'm i i think he is worth worthy of interest is that he he was this absolute archetype of the desk killer and he did make an attempt it was very short lived it was for a few years he actually did try to reflect and really think about what he'd done when he was in Spandau. But sadly, it was just a very few years with this Protestant chaplain. But it is a fascinating period. That At one point in the book, you go through many of the people involved in coming up with the final solution. As a, uh, you know, and even that those words tell us about a dehumanisation to the Jewish question. Mm. I mean, they, they're not saying what they're actually doing. Oh, yeah. um, but... Lots of them are lawyers, which I, oh, is something yes. I hadn't realised. Yes. And yeah. how, I mean, obviously, things may not be illegal that should be illegal, quite clearly. Mm. But how had lawyers managed to justify this in their mind? And is this, at, maybe this is at one, uh, onesie, the onesie conference, is uh, that van, right? Or uh, Vance, Vance, exactly, Vance. yeah, yeah, Vance. Yeah, I mean, um, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. Those, uh, those, those um, figures who, who were at the, the Vance conference was a meeting that was um, held on the 20th of January, 1942. And it brought together pretty much all the agencies of the Nazi state. So, we, you know, you had all the, all the departments of government, you had the, the um, Gestapo, you had the police, for, you know, had the judiciary, and, and eight of those, eight of the men who attended the Conference, eight out of 14 men, had doctorates. <laughs> they highly educated, and most of those were lawyers. And... I remember looking at this list, and I, 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 I show the list in the book, in the chapter, which is called The Doctors of Anze Meet in a Villa by the Lake, and it begins with a single piece of paper in a museum in Washington, and I was in this room, and I, 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 I couldn't believe the doctors, because I'd heard of a few, we know some of these names, like we probably know, most people would know Eichmann, of course, some people would, well, quite a lot of people would know Heydrich, who was the head of the security police in the RH, RSHA, and some people might know Muller, who was the head of the Gestapo. But the other people there on that list are almost totally unknown. You know, <laughs> Dr Langer, Dr Leibrandt, Dr Mayer, Dr Schoengarth, Dr Stuckart, Dr Buhler. You know, these are uh, the educated people, like the civil servants, essentially. And they were absolutely critical in the organisation of the Holocaust, these, these departments. And as you put it, they're sitting around a table by a lake discussing how to commit genocide. It's, it's totally... I mean, that to me is... That is, again, the kind of quintessence of what I'm writing about. And the fact that these people have received almost no attention in, in history, in the study of history... It, interestingly, the, a book was published only two years ago called The Participants by two German historians, 
That was published in, two, I, I believe, in 2018 or maybe late 2017. But that has taken, what, 70 years after the war for that book to be published about some of the most important people in terms of the organisation of the Holocaust. I mean, the other historian who who did some groundbreaking work on this was a man called Raoul Hilberg, who's an American historian who perhaps wrote the greatest book ever about the Holocaust, the destruction of the European Jews in the 60s. And Hilberg, and it, I, I, I again at, towards the end of the towards the end of this um, very long book, I again I I just I just try and describe Hil, Hilberg gave a huge challenge to all of us. I mean, there's so much that has been written now about the Holocaust. There's so much that has been, you know, um, in terms of films, documentaries, you know, all of these things. And yet, Hilberg's challenge is how do we actually how do we consider the the real complexity of the of the all the how did how did all the systems work together and in one of the last books he published which was called um perpetrators victims bystanders hilberg and i remember i was in the vena library doing research years ago when i just started um about more than 20 years ago when i started doing the research on this massive project and i opened this pay, pages and hilberg simply said the Holocaust could not have happened without, and then there were three or four pages listing, you know, the education ministry, the propaganda ministry, the economics ministry, the banks, the firms in retailing, the finance ministry, the foreign office, the transport ministry, the armed forces. You know, I could go on for minutes. And he just lists on these pages. And it's like, this is the challenge for all of us, is that we have to... Are we are our minds able to encompass the systems that enabled something like that to happen? And the only place I've ever seen that got close to doing that was when the Imperial War Museum opened. They opened the, the special museum on the Holocaust. They'd done an absolutely brilliant thing, and I think it's still there. You go into a small room, and they have done Hilberg's challenge. And on these four walls, you can see how all the agencies work together with charts and diagrams, and how. But it, you look at that room, and you, you, your mind starts spinning because you think, how can we understand what happens when you get the corporations working together with that ministry and that ministry and that ministry? And of course, it's much easier for us to only think about the individuals. So this is why there are books on Eichmann, there are books on Heydrich, there are books on individual perpetrators. But I think the challenge for us is to look, can we look systemically? Or is it too big for our minds to look at like the, in, in that way? Well, two of the companies you talk about in the book are UBS, the mm -hmm. Swiss bank, and another Swiss company called Saura, mm. uh, which made the trucks, the mm. sort of killing trucks, mm. effectively. Yeah. And in this story, you have um, a sort of whistleblower, a, a man yeah. who says at UBS that this mm. is not a, uh, as they're mm. destroying, yes, um, yes. Uh, busy shredding mm -hmm. uh, some papers. As late as, I mean, this was recent, wasn't it? Yes, not that that wasn't long ago. Well, yeah, that was a man called Christoph Maley, mm. who was a, uh, he, he worked as a security he guard. He worked as a security guard at UBS. And he realised that there were all these some uh, files of stuff which were due to be shredded. He, at, that, at this time, they had, they'd, they'd been in, in Switzerland, there'd been a, a commission had been set up called the Bergier Commission, which was looking at the wartime role of Swiss 
well, I mean, Swiss civil society, Swiss companies in collaborating with Nazi Germany. And it was a very partial commission. It didn't look into some things, but they'd started. So there was a certain amount of attention about this. And Maley thought, quite rightly, well, what's being done here? And he started to look at these documents and realised that they were, you know, absolutely showing UBS's involvement um, in, in, you know, by, um, seizure of Jewish seizure, assets yeah. and things like that. And he said, this is completely scandalous. And so he goes, he, you know, it's quite a long, complicated story, but he ends up going public with these and saves the documents. But the but, astounding thing in his, his life is he ends up having to move to the US. Well, and yes, and then he ended up... Yeah, he got asylum. But asylum, I think yeah. he was the first Swiss citizen for, you know, many, many years who actually got asylum, political asylum in America, because you don't think... But, you know, that's one example. And, and UBS, uh, in the book, I'm, I'm at Liverpool Street Station, and I'm looking at a memorial to the kinder transport, who, of course, all those children on the, who was about 10,000 children who came from just, you know, literally just before the war was declared, September 39. And uh, Nicholas Winton, is, you know, helped to save so many of those children. And we know that story. It's very, it's been often it's described. It's been on TV and it's one of the most yeah. amazing it moments is, I've ever seen on TV. It, Incredible yeah. moment when he meets the, he meets the, the children, children who've now survived. Who've survived. I mean, it's an, it's an astounding moment. It's a brilliant story. And the fact that, OK, it was it was a tiny number given the number of children who died in the Holocaust. But, you know, my God, that's important that those 10,000 came. And they arrived at Liverpool Street Station. There was a wonderful memorial there. And sadly, the original memorial is, is not there anymore. But there's, there's still a memorial outside... Liverpool Street, and I was absolutely astounded by by realising that the European headquarters of UBS, when I started working on this, was literally next door. And I began thinking, what's the relationship between this story of the, the children being saved from the Holocaust and this company who were massively involved with, you know, seizure of assets? And they also had, um, they bought a holding company called Interhandel in the 60s, who had been that a huge part of IG Farben, who were this massive chemical corporation, who without which, I'd, you know, people say Hitler could not have waged war. I mean, they were the second most powerful company in the world in the 1940s. And IG Farben had this massive complex at Auschwitz, where they were manufacturing synthetic fuels and synthetic rubber, where Primo Levi was a slave labourer in that, that part. Uh, the, again, this is, you know, this is part of a, a, another, as I talk about repeatedly in the book, another invisible part of the Holocaust. And I'm now going to show you something which maybe we can put up on our website later on. Intelligence Squared listeners can look at this astonishing map. This, as a single image, which we're looking at now, shows you the town of Uzvichem today, or Auschwitz, as the Germans renamed it. And this little tiny bit here, this is the museum that most of the two million visitors a year go to that museum. That's where you have the Arbeit Mach Frei Arch. That's where the piles of shoes are. So our received imagery of the Holocaust comes from this little tiny thing here. Some people go from that museum to the Birkenhau site, which was with the, where on, on the west of the town, where the gas chambers were. But you can see, looking at this map, what, the thing that absolutely stands out that is staggering is that in the east of Uzvichem, there's a huge chemical complex, which today is um, run by a Polish company called Dory. Still there. It's still a chemical. It's still manufacturing chemicals. And this was IG Farben's biggest investment in the war. Their biggest investment. 
and 30,000 people died. The slave labourers died here. There's almost no memorialization of this site. You go to Monovitz where Primo Levi and Elie Wiesel were slave labourers and Jean-Emery, who's another wonderful writer to do. And this, this has now become a little Polish village. There's almost nothing there. And in the book, you know, we walk across the town and I raise this incredibly important question, which is, have we been looking in the wrong way at history or have we been only looking in a partial way and i quote i quote this incredible lines from um from the writer wg sebald who um in his last book he talks uh, I, it's it's such a it's such an amazing line uh, it, it, it again it electrified me when i came across this he talks about how we look at history and he gives the example of how we remember battles in history and the fact we are looking at this detail and not that detail. And then he ends with this. Our concern with history is a concern with preformed images already printed on our brains, images at which we keep staring, while the truth lies elsewhere, away from it all, somewhere as yet undiscovered. And you look at that map... And you think, my God, we've been looking at this side of history, the Auschwitz Museum. We've been looking at Birkenau. Nothing has ever substantively been written about this complex. Nothing. Oh, well, maybe until this. And, but, you know, very detailed specialist historians who, read, who write papers that maybe, you know, a hundred people will read. But in terms of our common understanding of the Holocaust, I, I bet if you stopped 99.9% .9 of people on the streets of London, New York they would not know this place either existed or still exists today. They would not understand that that company was the second most powerful company in the world. They would not understand that that company paid for much of the concentration camp here to be built and that they used slave labourers from here to build that complex. And this is extraordinary. Corporations have utterly escaped, really, the view of, of their collaboration in the Holocaust. It's, it's one of the greatest untold stories of the Holocaust. And my concern, of course, is not just with history. I mean, you know, my concern is looking, all the things we've been talking about so far this afternoon, all of those things are absolutely still in our world. Well, that's what I wanted to bring you on to. I mean, much more, you, you discuss in depth the situation with Shell in Nigeria. Mm. Now, that's obviously much, much more recent. Mm. But we tend to think of the Holocaust uh, as, and uh, understandably so, an aberration, something, you know. But, but there are elements without the scale mm. of this kind of behaviour that mm. remains in our society. And we're ill-advised to assume that that was something that could only ever happen in the past and we couldn't, nothing like that could ever happen again. I mean... The behaviour, the the psychological compartmentalization that you, I describe in Speer, in Eichmann, in those kind of people in Stangl, that that psychological behaviour that 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 hasn't ended. That didn't end at the end of the war. I mean, that's with us every day. Every I mean, we you can see it in. Uh, take, just take one example. Today, most warfare, a huge amount of warfare, is now waged through drones. UAVs, as they're called. Yeah? Drones are operated most of the time, if they're used in Iraq or Afghanistan, they're being operated from a, a different base continent. in Nevada. Mm -hmm. 
And you get military personnel in Nevada who will drive into work and they will spend their day at a you know, desk with, with um, computer screens and they will spend their day killing people using drones and then they will drive back to their families in America. They, they never see a body. They never smell the blood. But those people are, those pe- those people are desk-killing in every bit as way, uh, in every every much as way as the as the people who designed the the gas trucks. Although they, it's become something like a video game, perhaps well, as well. It's got that added. Dimension. Well, they actually now when they um, when they do job job um, adverts, they're actually saying to people, young, you, obviously targeted at young men primarily, do you enjoy playing video games? They actually use that question in a job recruitment advert, which I put in the book. So this is, this is, I mean, that's just one example of the kind of way in which this distance killing, this death killing is a totally part of our world so that we don't even see it anymore. And I think people who work, and I mean, you might work at the Ministry of Defence, you might work for Shell or BP you know, or in a fossil fuels company, which is devastating, you know, somewhere on the other side of the world. Most people who work for Shell or BP, they're never going to set foot in Colombia. They're never going to go to Nigeria. They're never going to see the absolute destruction that their work has caused. You know, they're never going to they're never going to see the people whose whose lives have been destroyed, the 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 water that's been polluted. They're just not. You know, that that's not. I mean, quite consciously, especially with senior oil company people, I've been told through people who've really researched this that people who are really destined for high things in oil companies are actually encouraged never to go to those sites of extraction because they'll be so disturbed. And a friend of mine who interviewed the the head of Shell in the last couple of years most extraordinary. This is off the record uh, interview in, quite significantly. The head of Shell, Dutchman, recently was describing he did go to Nigeria and was absolutely appalled at what he saw. Not appalled enough to resign, but he was appalled at seeing the kind of gas flaring that still goes on. But what fascinated me and this and this friend of mine who did anything him, change though after this? Well, this is the problem. His, you know, when you're when you're the CEO of a company like Shell, you've spent what twenty, thirty years getting to that point. Are you really going to resign? But if you've been an oil executive, you might actually become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Ah. Of course. So there is a route back for some people. That's uh-huh. true. Yes, and I talk about I talk about Justin Welby in the book. Which you know uh, totally fascinates me, and I, I I hope to talk to him at some point in connection with maybe this. for book two. Well, I'd I'd love to because uh, he, of course, he spent I f- believe it was eight or nine years working for Elf, French oil company. He was actually spent some of his time in Nigeria, I believe, in the Niger Delta, and I'm totally fascinated at how he was able to how he was able to compartmentalize he's obviously a man of great great morality and integrity how he was able to do that carry on working in that situation and then keep his morality and perhaps i I wouldn't be surprised if if perhaps that period of working in nigeria contributed directly to his later decision to be to retrain as a priest i'd be fascinated to find out if that was part of his evolution it may well have been now i mentioned book two there because even though this is a um, an extraordinary epic. Uh, you are planning to write a second book. So. Well, I've actually written, or I've already written books three and four, because the first two books are published in this volume. 
and um, books three and four, I've written them. I haven't edited them yet, so that's the next stage. I'll be editing those. But I can give you, actually, a kind of uh, exclusive preview that book three will be in, uh, really concentrated on Hannah Arendt meeting Eichmann and that that what happened in that courtroom in Jerusalem, which has completely fascinated me for years, and the repercussions of that. And there'll also be a lot of material um, about I.G. Farben, but in much more detail than I can go into in this first volume, because I spent days with an amazing man called Dr. Piotr Setkiewicz, who's the head of the archives at Auschwitz, and he gave me open access to the archives. And I, I, he showed me some documents which are just mind-blowing. Like, the, like, I'll just show you one. I'll just show you one example. Again, total desk-killing. This is a letter from the mayor of Uzvichem to the head of IG Farben, which details the number of um, the um, the number of Jews in the town of Uzvichem, twenty five thousand five hundred and seven, very precisely written. Those are the Jews that can be moved out of the town so that the IG Farben chemical company employees can take over their houses. And so this is, uh, yeah, again, this has never been published anywhere. So uh, this is just one example. Absolute desk-killing. And so uh, that will be very much part of the second volume. And uh, at the end of the second volume, I'm really going to focus enormously on em- empathy and how how we combat this kind of process of, of psychological compartmentalization and how we how we deal with this real issue of the Descalers all around us and I want to give the reader I do really want to give the reader hope because the way I've written this and I hope you'll you'll agree um, is that because it's such a terrifying subject and such a understandably disturbing subject but I wanted to write this book in a way that is also gives the reader space there's an enormous amount of humanity, I think, in this book. And I talk about, for instance, my, um, you know, things to do with my relationship with my father and family and relationships. And there's a, there's a lot of space where the readers can actually pause between the horror and reflect on uh, really the amazing things in life that, you know, one of the challenges for all of us these days is we're living in politically truly dark and disturbing times and so, as Rebecca Solnit, the American writer and activist, says, you know, we need to find hope in the dark. And hope is inextinguishable. And, you know, I, one of the paradoxes of this book is, although it, it seems to be about such a, such a grim subject, I think there's a lot of hope in humanity. And, uh, you know, my background is as an activist, as well as a writer. And I, you know, I, I could not go on if I didn't have that hope. And I hope hope goes through all these pages, even though it is a very, very serious book. Well, I look forward to welcoming you back to talk about volumes three and four. (laughs) Thank Thank you very much. Thanks so much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.